If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. He's happy to hear from them, uh, but he's uh, also feels uh, strongly about the need to make sure the size of the package meets this moment. That was uh, new White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Robert Gibbs, an old friend of ours, yesterday. Love Jen. Speaking about the uh, the president's first meeting with members of the Congress uh, at the White House, it happened to be with 10 Republicans who wanted to talk to him about his COVID uh, relief package. And so we want to disentangle all of that and figure out what's going on uh, from a strategic standpoint. And who better to help us sort through all of that than former Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, currently a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, for which we are deeply grateful. Heidi, uh, good to be with you. It's great to be here. So what about this, uh, you guys? Um, this was always, if, you know, avid listeners of Hacks on Tap will know that we've been kicking this around for a long time, that we were looking to this moment as the first significant strategic challenge for Biden, because he's got a figure out speed and and and, um, and heft in terms of his package here, COVID and economic, uh, versus his pledge to work across the aisle. Uh, Heidi, if you were sitting there uh, as a member of the Senate from from uh, from North Dakota, uh, what would you be what would you be thinking now and where do you think this is going? Well, I would be thinking that the greatest way towards permanency is bipartisan, uh, is the bipartisan direction, that it would be hard to justify after a campaign that says, I'm going to govern for all of you and listen to all of you, if the first thing that you do is use a procedure that shortcuts that kind of debate. Um, I understand this, the stress between getting something done quickly, um, but but I, I think everybody's kind of forgetting that you still only have 50 Democratic votes, and there's been a number of Democrats who have expressed reservation right. about this package. And so I think it really is important for Biden to sit down and try and fashion some kind of compromise that that achieves some kind of uh, ability preserving reconciliation for um, maybe uh, uh, where he can't get compromise. Yeah, well, this the question is whether this is that moment I I hear you, but uh, the idea that he's going to get the 10 Republicans to go along with him uh, seems on this, and without making significant, they came in with a proposal that was a third the size of his, which was $1.9 trillion. Robert, if you're sitting in the White House, uh, aren't you kind of thinking, like, we're going to be judged by the impact that we have? 
We're not going to be judged on style points. This isn't figure skating. Uh, so, I gave you that line, by the way. Oh, you stole okay. that from our call yesterday. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm, no, I think I <laughs> well, did. I, you I did, think I but did. it's okay. I was going to use it, but, but now you had I'm, a couple of other good lines. You'll sounds, hear them throughout it, this uh, it podcast. It sounds good. No, I, I think no, but I think you're 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 right in the sense that um, in two years or even in a year, they're going to be measured by how's the economy functioning, how many people that lost their job. We lost twenty million jobs uh, during the pandemic. We've only replaced a, a little a, around half of them. How quickly do those people get back to work? And and look, I, I think I, I agree with Senator Heidkamp on the notion of and the theory of bipartisanship. I think it would be helpful in the longer term. I worry, however, that it can't work in the short term here because the concentric circles of a $600 billion plan and a $1.9 trillion plan just don't overlap enough to find that commonality. I think you're the challenge that 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 is presented is they're they're a decent ways apart. And if you're Joe Biden and you're Joe Biden's economic team, and your theory is we need one point nine trillion dollars to to supercharge this economy and get it back to recovery more quickly, then you I think have to decide you're going to go big and you're going to go fast because as you said, you're going to be measured not by the 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 judge on on the the twist on your axle, but on whether or not you land the the entire program. I've tried to pull the figure skating through. I there. think the landing part was my addition to your. <laughs> I think now, so now you're stealing shit from me. We swapped. We okay. Swapped. All right. That's fair. So this is what you guys are really arguing is that it's so essential to do this package. And one thing we know, I remember when when we had impeachment in January and everybody thought that was what was going to dominate the discussion in November. You know, this is this is a, a case of first impression. This will be Biden's first impression. And if it's to step over some kind of attempt at compromise, it will taint the entire opportunity he has to do things on climate, to do things on infrastructure. And so don't just focus on today. Think about what this is going to look like five months before the election in uh, 2022. Yeah, but that would be that would be the argument for the other thing, the other approach as well. Well, Senator, I I thought you made a let me, you made a, a good point. I can't remember if it was before we started recording or not, but you mentioned the idea of, you know, there are only 50 Democrats. I think it was when we were recording. It, you know, w- what, I guess, what do you think the challenge is of keeping the 50 Democrats on board if you go to something smaller? Well, I, I honestly think that... Um, it depends on what you put together. I mean, there's people already who are complaining that it's not two thousand dollars when it, when we've already done the six hundred. And I, I mean, I think if if I were there, what I would be proposing is three thousand dollars for people who make under fifty thousand dollars. I mean, I would be restructuring this so that you could actually make an argument to the more progressive community that your package is more progressive. I think that that this isn't the I mean, everybody's like, OK, this is the package. Well, well, that's not the end all and be all. Maybe there's right. there's something you can do better in debate and it can be more targeted to people who really need it. Well, that's going to happen. See, I mean, I, you know, Biden had the 10 Republicans over. One of their complaints was that this uh, that this direct aid to people, these checks, uh, is not targeted and that it's too expensive and it's not uh, necessary. It seems pretty clear that uh, 
that's an area where Biden may compromise. And he may have to compromise, not just to uh, placate Republicans, who I think at the end of the day are unlikely to support this, but he just to get his to his 50, 50 uh, Democrats, because there are Democrats who, you know, Joe Manchin being the leading one, right. we'll get to him more in a second, who said that he also wants it more targeted because, um, you know, right now it's for individuals 75,000 and, and families 150, and there are aspects of it that make it uh, make these checks available to uh, to families that are even more uh, well well off than that. I think you say, okay, you need 1.9 to stimulate the economy. No better place than the bottom quartile who have been hit the hardest. We're going to take and reinvest and keep it at where it's at, but reinvest the dollars and make it impossible for progressives to say we don't like that. Well, well, I mean, you know, there there are a lot of elements uh, to this. Um, You know, there's exponentially more money in the Democratic package for school reopening. Uh, There is a child care tax credit uh, that is a big piece of this Democratic package. It's not in the Republican package. That is something, you know, some of your former colleagues, uh, uh, Sherrod Brown and uh, Michael Bennett have been fighting for for years a refundable child care tax credit because so many people have uh, problems with uh, affording child care. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of elements. I mean, there's no doubt that the package that, that the Democrats put together is is more expansive, you know, aid to local governments, some, uh, many of whom are struggling. Um, you know, that's a big piece of this. Republicans don't want that. Um, and, you know, I, I could see, uh, Biden, I think he will trim, uh, some of this down. I don't think it'll be a $1.9 trillion plan. I, I, I would doubt it, uh, once it gets, uh, done, but, um, they're going to view this as the, be- their best chance to jolt this economy, to get some of these progressive objectives, uh, achieved. And as you know, you can only do this budget reconciliation procedure once, uh, you know, twice in a in a in a session. Every time, each time you have a budget, you can do it once. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I talk to your colleagues. It seems to me like the, that there is quite a bit of unanimity. Uh, you know, partly because there are fewer fewer um, sort of moderate uh, senators now, but um, there's quite a bit of unanimity to do something big rather than to skinny it down. Rather than looking at the total package, though, take a look at each element. I would, I mean, if you look at paid family leave, if you look at child credit, and which Michael told me he thinks will uh, basically almost, I mean, have a dramatic effect on lifting children out yeah. of poverty. Yes, child so, poverty. Right. So, so my point is, you know, restructure it, and sell the package. But what all people see is that people are going to get a $2,000 check yeah. who may make $300,000. People go, well, that's that's waste. Yeah. Well, that's that I think is going to be the outcome of these discussions. Let me ask you guys something, though. The symbolism of meeting with these senators and for two hours yesterday at the White House seems important in, of, in and of itself. I mean, bipartisanship doesn't mean, unity doesn't mean mean unanimity and you're never going to achieve that but tonally it seemed that seemed like an important thing to do uh for biden and if he responds by 
making a few changes, even if it's not supported ultimately uh, by these Republicans. Isn't there some value in that? Oh, absolutely. He's got to have the proof point on both sides of his agenda. Get rid of COVID, get the economy going, deal with uh, racial and income inequality, deal with climate. Okay, set that aside. Then the other side was reunite the country. And so what's the visual? Him meeting with those 10, 10 senators, hugely important visual. Yeah, we should let's play a little bite uh, from uh, Susan Collins. Her tone was uh was interesting as well because it was there was a sort of welcoming air to it that you know we didn't get together on this but we really appreciated the conversation it was a very good exchange of views i wouldn't say that we came together on a package tonight no one expected that in a two-hour meeting but what we did agree to do is to follow up and talk further I think for both both sides of this, you know, it, it is important to get caught trying at the very least, right? You want to leave the impression that you're you're entering into this in good faith and that you're listening. Now, I think we're talking about this all from the Biden side. Let's think about this from the moderate Republican side. They've put out a 618 billion dollar bill and and again, I, I agree with Senator I can't. We, we can't get totally focused on the numbers, but just for comparison's purposes, my, no, I can, not, he's on the he's on the policy launching pad here. No, no, no. Hacks on gonna, tap, brother. We're all about politics. Here. I know. I'm not going League of Women Voters on you. Okay. No. My, my question is this. Oh, here come the letters. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no. What what, I know, what capacity do the Republicans have to move toward Biden? Right. So, like, I think bipartisanship has to be on both sides. It can't just be hey. If you're if you're with these right. ten moderate Republicans, hey, we've got a plan. We can get you ten votes, and it has to be our plan because that's not bipartisanship. So the the question Especially when I it's think a third is, the size of his plan, exactly. And I think the question really is, and this will be where the rub is, is when you start to move away from on both sides, right? Whether when you start to move away from the original plans, what then happens to the math, right? And and I'm you know as I told this story. Last week with with Murphy, but I'll tell it again. It, it, this we had this discussion with Chuck Grassley for months and months and months on healthcare, right? Because Max Baucus wanted to bring Grassley along. He wanted healthcare to be bipartisan, you know. And and finally, the president says to Grassley in the Oval Office, you know, if we did all, what do you need? And if we did all of those things, would you vote for it? And the answer was no. And that allowed us to walk away from the idea that we were going to somehow get Grassley and a bunch of others. And I think so. I think it, it may not just be that the first meeting is the first meeting is important. The most important meeting is probably the next one. And it, that may be the next, the second meeting or the fifth meeting. But I think it'll be interesting to watch the interplay because, again, for it to be bipartisan, it's going to have to be up for discussion by both parties. Yeah. I, I, if I can just add a dynamic here. So. Is the deal on the table, we'll take this if you don't do anything else with reconciliation. And so, you know, that's that's a deal that will anger Democrats on, on yeah. you know, across the board. If he takes reconciliation off the table and does a crappy deal, that's problematic. 
And so, so think about this. So you get what you can in a bipartisan way. You have a bipartisan victory. Then you take a look at how can you do minimum wage, which he's not going to get $15 minimum wage in his, in his deal with the Republicans. How can you take that and do reconciliation? Are you still reserving that once a year kind of benefit that you have to get stuff done? So you're saying do the first part bipartisan. And then come back in whatever, June or whatever, and do reconciliation on a series of other things. Right. And and my point is, I don't are you gonna get every Democrat to do fifteen dollar minimum wage? Are you gonna get every Democrat to do these things? To me, the the most important thing, and we hate to talk policy, is find those <laughs> things that are popular. I, I can right? see how much like we hate child, it. <laughs> like child credit, find find things that are popular and then say, Why is why is Susan Collins voting against child care credits? Yeah, why right. is she voting against child credits? You know, focus not on the state and local stuff because no one likes state and local government. Come on, they all think they waste money. Focus on the things that are family-centered and and make sure that those are in the packages and you can get them done and don't make any commitment on what you're going to do with reconciliation. Yeah. Well, the thing is that the Democrats feel strongly about some of those items like state and local government. By the way, on, on, the, on the, the, the idea that the Senate parliamentarian is going to allow a vote on the minimum wage as part of reconciliation seems a little, you know, I don't, now we are getting nerdy. We yeah, should point yeah, out bud, budget reconciliation is a process that is reserved to one time a, a year where the House During and the budget, Senate can right. reconcile their budget plans and you can uh, pass it with a majority, a simple majority, uh, if they agree on the language, but it it has to be about uh, ta- spending and revenues. It can't be about extraneous items. I don't know how the parliamentarian includes uh, the minimum wage in that. I have a couple good ideas. I mean, how did how did we get mandated health insurance through reconciliation? Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. So, so my my point would be where there's a will, there's a way, and you know you can you. So can you think they this. can do the minimum wage through reconciliation? I, I think that there's an argument that you can, and I would argue All with right. Elizabeth okay. Parliamentarian that I could. I mean, I I love Elizabeth. I I think she's one of the most underappreciated uh, people in the state capitol. But you know, my, my because she's she has to make hard decisions. It's a but, parliamentarian, yeah, yeah. But but my my point would be. You know, look, you know, you've got to be creative just as they were creative. But understand this. Everybody says we need to use reconciliation. That tax bill that was done can easily be undone. The 2017 tax tax bill. bill. Yep. Because it was done in reconciliation. Plus, remember this. Remember that John McCain in a 50-50 split saved the the, the Affordable Care Act. Yes, because he was one vote and one person in the Democratic caucus now has a lot of control. Yeah, everybody gets to be the majority leader now. Let's talk about one of those people, which is Joe Manchin, who, uh, you know, he's got a lot of power for a couple of reasons. One is he is the most probably the most conservative member of the Democratic caucus. He comes from a state that overwhelmingly uh, supported Donald Trump. Uh, and he's also the chair of the, uh, the, the, the Senate Energy and Commerce committee. And so a lot of this climate change, any climate change legislation is likely to go through him. He represents a coal state. Uh, so that's, you know, that he, he's, a, he's an interesting player in all of this. In the midst of this, the White House sent virtually 
the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, to television stations in two states, West Virginia, Mansion State, and, and Arizona, where Kirsten Cinema, who is another relatively conservative Democrat, lives so and 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 uh, and works. Mansion was not happy about this. Let us listen to his reaction to the vice president's visit to the airwaves of West Virginia. I saw it. I couldn't believe it. No one called me. We're going to try to find a bipartisan pathway for it. I think we need to, but we need to work together. That's not a way of working together. What was done, Senator? What was your uh, what was your reaction when you saw that story? Well, I, I mean, I was shocked. Um, I, you know, Joe is like one of my best pals, so I immediately, you know, sent him a sympathy card because those of us who maybe lean towards a more conservative direction frequently were targeted by the progressives. Um, there's now a discussion, as you probably have seen, about a liberal group, kind of the the justice Democrats. Uh, the, equivalent in the Senate of primarying them. I want every person who thinks that uh, uh, West Virginia is an easy state for a Democrat to win, I want them to go and get 20,000 votes. I want them to go get people signed up. They have no idea. And the, 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 the thing is that it was malpractice because number one, Kamala Harris is not going to turn any West Virginia Democrat or West Virginia person against Joe Manchin. So there was absolutely no purpose other than to irritate. Do you think that was that? The, the White House, I'm sure, would say that wasn't the intent. Oh, but, well, hello. <laughs> Why would you go to West Virginia with this message and Arizona with this message? It was clearly to put pressure on on Kirsten and, and Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 David, I think you and I had the same reaction that the Senator did. I mean, I, when I first saw the story, I was like, wow, that's, um, that's a, a, it's a bit early for fastballs, I would say, one. Uh, two, to, to the Senator's point, I mean, the person running against Shelley Moore Capita, who's the other Senator from West Virginia, got 27% of the vote in 2020. Joe Biden got 30%. And the fellow running for governor got 31%. So the, the idea somehow that, A, uh, any Democrat is going to pressure a Democrat into voting for something in a state where you're topping out at 31% is not smart or not well thought out. And look, your message isn't, your message certainly shouldn't be to Joe Manchin. Hey, come along with the National Democratic Party on this. You need to go to Joe Manchin and say what I think they probably will do, which is what do you need? What do you need to tinker with in this bill to show some progress such that you can go back and sell this to your constituents in West Virginia? It's a whole lot better than clubbing him over the head with this idea that somehow, you know. I don't know what he could do other than hang flashing neon lights here that this targeting these uh, checks, as we talked about before, seems to be a real focus of his. It's very clear uh, that they were going to have to do that. And they signaled that they might be willing to do that. Uh, And they've said the final bill will not look exactly like what we've proposed. So, yeah, the strategy behind, you know, sort of, as you say, uh, you know, throwing a fastball while a guy was still in the batter's box at him, uh, it didn't make sense. No, it didn't it was, make sense. I mean, you can think of a lot of different ways to describe it. Clumsy. Look, they're not going to pitch a perfect <laughs> game. I would certainly, I would certainly take the power politics. My favorite was they sent him. They sent her also to the editorial board. Like, 
I, I love that the, it's like a 1996 communication strategy in 2021 that somehow, gee, if we can just get the editorial board to write an editorial, then that will really, that'll pinch Joe Manchin into voting for, it's just sort of, it's silly. Yeah, this is not going to make me popular, but another word you should put on it is arrogant. It was arrogant to think that you are bigger than Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Hello. Yeah. I mean, you know, so so they need to calibrate where their strength is and where their strength isn't. And this was a this was malpractice. And to your point, Senator, let, let, let's suppose you get a, a group of people from whoever they are to go primary Joe Manchin. Does anybody <laughs> think they're going to fit? Does any raise your hand in this country if we think we're getting a more liberal person to represent West Virginia? I mean, Joe Manchin is the only Democrat that could represent in the Senate West Virginia. And we should just all remember you lose him and we're at 49. Well, trust me, Joe Manchin, you know, I I don't think Joe Manchin's going to run again. He didn't want to run last time. Right. Well, and the next time it would be in a presidential year, which is not a great time to run uh, for the uh, uh, for the Senate in West Virginia, given how much of it, you know, there's like a 95 percent correlation between how people vote on their Senate. Uh, yep. At least in this last election, it was the highest ever 95 percent correlation between their Senate vote and their presidential vote. You know, Pete Buttigieg, uh, when he years ago, when he was running for uh, right after he ran for Democratic Party chair, a race that he, to his everlasting luck, lost. Uh, <laughs> and life got better for him from there. But he came uh, by the Institute of Politics, and we were having a forum on the Democratic Party. This was in 2017. And a student stood up and said, why should I support Joe Manchin? And Buttigieg said, you know, I guess my theory is I'm for the most progressive candidate who can win. Uh, and, you know, it strikes me that Joe Manchin is probably the most progressive candidate who can win in the state of uh, West Absolutely. Virginia, which is a the, the which is you know the truth. You know, everybody's like, "Go, oh, Joe!" You know, maybe he'll switch parties. I'm like, "Hello, he's got more power. Why would he hand that power right. to Mitch McConnell?" So let's just not be right. stupid about that. But more importantly, he's very economically. You know, if you look at the bottom quartile and you offer a plan that's going to help people raise you know, their their standard of living for people he cares deeply about as a West Virginia Democrat, you're going to have him. You're going to have Joe Manchin. He's not he's not conservative on those issues. Right. He's a pragmatist. And he also, you know, I mean, the other you talk about arrogance. The question is, do you have people who represent their states? Right. Uh, he He reflects and represents his state. And that's yeah. why he's won. Uh, uh, all these all these years but um but yeah that was kind of a that was a false step and i i really wonder how uh how the other joe the guy sitting in the <laughs> oval office felt about it having served in the senate for 36 years because if ever there was a guy who understood a fastball coming at him uh from the white house you know after 36 years in the senate it would be him uh, so I'm, I wonder what his reaction was when he, um, I, I, I have a very strong feeling that Joe Biden didn't say, Hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we rough up mansion and uh, cinema with a little, <laughs> you know, I, I gotta, I gotta, I just know that that was not the way this thing went down. <laughs> Maybe the cleanest version w- that we would have gotten in the Oval Office was come on, man. Um, yeah, right. it, it was probably a, a bit more colorful than even that. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and, and I think an important lesson for the vice president, which is when some staff person tells you this is a good idea, use your own independent judgment. No one who knows Joe Manchin thought this was a good idea. <laughs> okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Let's talk about the Republicans. Uh, they've got their own issues going here. You know, this is going to be an interesting couple of days. Uh, part of it is that they've got, you know, lunatics in their midst. Uh, this Marjorie Taylor Greene, for one, uh, whose litany of absolutely batshit crazy statements are now uh, widely known, including um, uh, embracing a suggestion that someone put a bullet through the head of the Speaker of the House uh, and uh, a wide variety of, of other things that Mitch McConnell uh, cited yesterday in uh, in condemning her the person who hasn't is the house minority leader the house republican leader kevin mccarthy who's got a rabid caucus and 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 has not has not been outspoken about this so like what does he do now what does he do with her uh well i i, I think they're supposed to meet sometime 
in the next they you are. Know, few next days. Couple of days. I mean, look, I, I think one of the things, I, I think it's fascinating that McConnell has projected himself into essentially house politics, if you will, because I think he sees a couple of important things, right? One, I think he understands that they didn't build uh, a fence quick enough for Donald Trump. And he got he got so big that then they couldn't go backwards, right? You can't you couldn't put him back in a box two years into this process. Uh, I think McConnell's also having flashbacks to 2012 uh, in a period in which he had what he thought were two very winnable Senate races in Missouri and Indiana, and they nominated people way out on the fringe. Uh, and Democrats were able to win both of those seats with Claire McCaskill and Joe Donnelly. Uh, and I think that had we had seen it in 2010 with the Tea Party in a place like Colorado and Nevada. Uh, and I think McConnell is having those flashbacks. I, I think it's so it's fascinating to watch this happen. I think he's trying to make sure that it, it doesn't happen again with somebody um, who's a freshman member of Congress. Yeah, well, what he he what he, let's just interrupt. What he recognizes is that she is going to become the emblem of the Republican Party. Yeah, and that absolutely. and everybody who runs everywhere. It's not just about losing a seat uh, in a discrete place. This is going to be uh, yes. uh, something that they are going to have to defend. Here's what he said. He said, "Loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party in our country." Somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9/11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. But Heidi, he's he was talking. He's talking about someone in the across the corridor in in the House caucus and the House Republican leader. I mean, it seems to me like he's putting a hell of a lot of pressure on McCarthy. Well, he's saying, don't don't let me get infected with this stink. Yeah. I mean, you know, she she's a skunk and and he's he's trying to back away and put up a shield in the Senate. And he's also forcing McCarthy's hand. But understand this. This is a party that has assumed power by pandering to white supremacists and pandering to crazy conspiracy theorists. And they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know how to spin out out of it. And and that's the problem McCarthy has because he sees his majority. I mean, they see their 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 path to majority very differently because of gerrymandered districts and because of of um, kind of moving forward with the five or six districts that he's going to target. But this is this is the Republican Party. Make no mistake about it. 30% of the Republican Party, white supremacists and crazy conspiracy theorists. And David, David, I think one of the things too, I mean, I think one of the reasons you haven't heard McCarthy say stuff is that none of this is new to McCarthy, right? Just to be clear, this idea that Marjorie Taylor Greene said this stuff didn't spill out last week. They had meetings about this because she went through a primary process and the House Republicans decided and and McCarthy was in those meetings, decided not to get involved in the primary. They knew what they were buying into. And let's be clear, the the district she represents, very North Georgia, was going to be won by a Republican. This meeting was simply going to be deciding, did they put their thumb on the scale for a certain Republican? So he's not only in a... 
he, he's not only in a, in a difficult spot, he's known he's been in a difficult spot for months, and now he's got to make a decision. And I think if he doesn't put her on the sidelines in some way, then again, the, the, you know, I don't know how many horses have to leave the barn before you start building a fence. Listen, I think uh, Kevin <laughs> McCarthy, if you were if you were put, if you wanted to put a political weather vane on top of your house, it would look like Kevin McCarthy. I mean, he is the ultimate political right. weather vane. And uh, the fact that he stood up on the floor of the House the day of the insurrection and, and, and laid the blame properly on the president's doorstep and then flew down, you know, last week to, to President Trump, uh, to former President Trump and did a, a you know, a, a show a photo with him and uh, recanted what he had said about him tells you where he thinks it tells you what Heidi is saying. It tells you what where he thinks the prevailing winds in his party are, and now this week this is where the rubber, uh, the rubber hits the road because it's not just this. They're going to vote in in caucus tomorrow uh, on their leadership, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there there are a hundred or more House Republicans who are calling for the scalp of Liz Cheney for having the temerity to vote her conscience on impeachment. Right. And the and there's a very powerful Republican establishment, part of which funds a lot of what the Republican Party does, that is death on that. Yeah. And so, you know, my guess is, by the way, that he uses a parliamentary, um, they, they, they have a, a, a boatload of rules to help him uh, forestall uh, a vote on removing uh, Cheney. And I don't think that's going to happen. But the other one is a little tricky. It shouldn't be. It should be clear. And I think McConnell, look, I'm not suggesting McConnell is having some change of heart about how government should be run and all this kind of stuff. I think this he I think he very much sees the next two years of let's get the controversy as much as we can out of the party. Let's paper over whatever policy uh, uh, challenges we have and be focused on beating Joe Biden and the Democrats in two years. And he sees the Marjorie Taylor Greens as you know just a huge huge detour in that and i think he's i i think he's look i actually think he's being really smart from a party perspective because that they they understand the limits of what they can do with these candidates we saw it in the presidential campaign we see it in any candidate that represents the suburbs we see it i mean the 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 Trump campaign, you know, there was a memo that leaked last night, a 27-page memo. Yeah. Sort of a, the, the— From Tony the, Fabricio, his yeah, uh, pollster. Pollster sort of did the the autopsy of, you know, of, of Trump's loss. And, and you know, it's massive—it's massive losses of white voters. It wasn't well, just white like, college voters, yeah. Right. It wasn't just like young hipsters that all came right. out. It was—he right. lost a big chunk of his base, and it's death for them. I want to just make a point because, um, you know, I'm assuming that leadership is getting some pretty high profile briefings on what happened during the insurrection stuff. You're not seeing, right? You don't know what McCar- you don't know what, um, what, uh, uh, Mitch is seeing. Um, and, and you don't know whether she was in fact part of this whole movement. And so be very, I mean, be very aware that, we don't know everything right now as it relates to her complicity um, in in the insurrection. Yeah, I think there's one thing that you can presume on that, and I think you're you're getting at this, Senator. Is the insurrection story is is only likely to get worse every time we hear something. You're absolutely right. right. Whether yeah. it is whether it's the actions of somebody in Congress, 
the actions of people that broke in, the actions of people that might have helped let them in, all of that. Okay, so so not to put a fine point on this, but think about a couple days before this happens, Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney leads a letter of former secretaries of defense saying, you owe your obligation to the Constitution. Then Liz Cheney Mm -hmm. votes the way she votes. What do they know about what was actually going on internally? You know, uh, just the one last point on uh, on on McConnell. The you know he's got races coming up in in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that are uh, going to be Ohio. crucial to his ability. And now Ohio, we'll we'll, we'll probably get to that uh, in the in the when we get to the mailbag. But uh, and you know I don't think he wants Marjorie Taylor Greene on the on the backs of whoever is going to be carrying the Republican. Uh, Republican flags there. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. Heidi, before we, I want to ask you just really quickly about the stuff that, that, that you're doing with your One Country Fund and the hot dish your your podcast love the title it's up there with hacks on tap uh (laughs) but before i get there i just want to just real quick on the executive orders biden has had probably done close to 50 of them by now i've got a question for you and a question for gibbs the question for you is a bunch of them really do speak to some of the progressive commitments he's made on race on climate on uh, abortion rights uh and so on um what uh how, how do you react to those from your from your vantage point uh sitting where you're sitting and then robert i just want to ask you what you think the efficacy of a flood of executive orders are in terms of communications and whether that's an effective t- does it communicate a lot of action or does it get clogged up in the communications pipeline. But the two that stand out in a state like mine are the Keystone XL pipeline and the re, uh, elimination of, uh, of uh, leasing on federal lands. Um, you know, I've been, I've been dinged because, you know, I supported the president, still do support the president, President Biden. And when people come with me at Keystone, I say it's the first thing Donald Trump did. You had four years to build it. Why isn't it built? Because it's not economic anymore. Um, and it, it, drilling on, on federal land, it's like uh, the only problem that I have with that and that I, that I have a hard time defending is if it involves tribal land, because, uh, these are tribal resources. And once again, the paternalistic environmental versus tribal interests, um, you know, will come to the forefront. But, you know, everybody's going to forget that he signed these executive orders. Everybody's kind of overreacting at this point and he's fundamentally undoing what the president did. Um, and, and I think people expected this. Uh, it, it should be no surprise. And I think the progressives rightfully demanded it because that's what he promised he would do. What about the communications piece, Robert? Well, look, I think it's always, it, it's always, um, it's always hard to get more than one message through the tubes at a time, right? I mean, the one, the one good thing I think for Biden is there's a lot of different communication avenues for people that care about different aspects of this. Um, right. I think, you know, it, it, folks that are. So people are hearing the stuff. They're getting the news that they need to hear. Absolutely. And I, I think politically to, to build off of what Senator Heidkamp talked about, I, I think it's smart um, for two reasons. Every administration is an inflection point. 
um, particularly if you're changing parties. And I think really emphasizing the inflection change in Trump to Biden was important for Biden. Uh, and, and I think it really also what Senator said, which was it, it showed the progressives that he was willing to take up some of their fights. Um, I think he also understands in his the back of his mind legislatively those those fights are going to be enormously difficult in a 50-50 Senate. And to the degree which you can't use reconciliation every time you want to have a vote, you're going to want to show progress. We've already seen the limits of some of these. I mean, there's a federal judge in Texas that knocked right. down the idea right. of a of a moratorium on deportation. So it, it shows you the limit of these. I, I think, look, we've talked about this before. I think th- in the end, they want to have him spending most of his time on the economy and the pandemic, uh, and he'll be judged based on yeah on on how many vaccines get in how many arms, how quickly. That, that's my thing, man. I, I just think that the, that the, that Joe Biden is going to be judged so much on how quickly and how effectively he leads us out of this morass we're in with this virus and gets the economy going again and gets people back to work. That's why I think he should move. Uh, I, I, I kind of disagree, uh, Heidi, on the, I, I think he should move. If he has to move through reconciliation, he should, because people may, you know, there may be people who are disappointed with him uh, because he, he had to use a Dem only strategy. But at the end of the day, if he gets this thing moving, he's going to be in good shape. And if he doesn't get it moving, he's not. Let's switch over to the red state. You know, you look at the election and more than ever, the Democratic Party is a bunch of islands of blue uh, in a sea of red. Uh, 80% of the counties voting for Trump. You are, you, you swim in a sea of red over there. You, uh, you, you, you almost drowned in a sea of red uh, when you ran for re-election. Uh, so, uh, and now you're involved in these projects. And what is the what is the single biggest thing? Because you know, I you used the word paternalistic before. I've been saying for some time now, and listeners here know this. Democratic Party has to stop moralizing to people. I mean, climate change is an existential crisis. But if you make your living extracting energy from the ground, losing your job and your paycheck is an existential crisis too. There has to be some sensitivity to these issues, even as you move forward and everybody has to be included in the discussion and everybody has to be uh, included in the answers. So um, that word paternalistic kind of rang true to me. Well, I, I mean, the first thing to all of the progressives who listen to you, understand this. You, if you do the work that the three of us do and you look at numbers, you will not have a majority governing party unless you begin to address that is shaving off some of the margins in these ruby red places. We've got to get back to where you guys were when you ran with uh, Barack Obama in 2008. If we could move back to the numbers we had in 2008, there would be a governing majority for the Democratic Party. And so it's not just to pandering to, you know, red, racist, whatever you want to call us out here. It is about building a consensus in this country on priority issues and, and, and moving those issues forward. And to me, this is, you know, not to pick on them, but, but the moment that I heard the fingernails on the chalkboard for the work that I do was when John Kerry said, 
Oh, well, when, when, you know, when a oil field worker comes to me and says they're going to lose their job, just tell them that they can build solar panels. That has become almost a rallying cry, the build solar panels argument. Maybe, maybe instead of that, what he should have said is, I am going to go to Western North Dakota or to, uh, if you don't like North Dakota, go to New Mexico where they have a huge oil and gas industry, go to Colorado, and I'm going to sit down with oil field workers and I'm going to talk about why I think this is important and what we can do working together. Instead of instead of that, oh, just go build solar panels. Yeah. It's it's like it's like so freaking tone deaf, and that's what we need to fix in the Democratic Party. It's related to the long time discussion about trade. You know, you always heard trade is free trade is going to boost our economy and it's going to create jobs. Uh, the problem is it didn't create jobs in the places where the jobs were lost. So. Uh, you know, and there were promises made that that never really, uh, never really uh, surfaced. And and yeah, you can build solar panels and you can build wind turbines, but if if you're not getting paid well to do those jobs, uh, even if it's a practical answer, that's a that's a problem. But you're 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 right. I mean, this should be it should be a dialogue. I, I feel the same way about the um, now I'm on my soapbox, Robert. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I feel uh, the same way, even as we talk about the virus. You know, I'm sitting here on my ass. As you guys know, we can let the viewing uh, public know since we're a podcast and they don't view anything. Sitting here in my pajamas uh, doing this podcast. This is how I've done a lot of my work for the last year. I haven't lost a paycheck. I've got money in the stock market. I've done well. There are a whole lot of people in this country who live from paycheck to paycheck, who've lost those paychecks because they have to sacrifice for the country. There are people who've lost their small businesses, and we moralize that this is their obligation to do that. And that, how about some solicitude for uh, people who have lost a lot as a result of this virus that some of us want, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to sit in front of a computer and work, we, we don't we don't have to make that sacrifice. That's why, frankly, a relief package and some of the economic measures are, are really important because it says we are going to stand by you. You have sacrificed for the country. You have lost for the country in this virus, and we are not going to let you fall through that hole. Anyway, Robert, I'm, I'm done. You can just say amen if you want to. Uh, amen. I, I wanted to, um, <laughs> as as our uh, listeners try to get the mental image of your pajamas out of their head, yes, um, the, I thought I would uh, just one quick news with update. With feet. Yeah. One, one, <laughs> one quick news update from, from Punchbowl News. Um, Joe Manchin, in a statement, I will vote to move forward with the budget process because we must address the urgency of the COVID-19 crisis. But let me be clear, and these are words I share with President Biden, our focus must be targeted on the COVID-19 crisis and Americans who have been impacted most by this pandemic. He goes on, but I think it, it gives yeah. you a sense. He's the he's, roadmap. Yeah, he's he's leaving. He's leaving a lots of different exits open. He's saying we can we can proceed. I think to 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 Senator Heitkamp's point earlier, he's he may be closing the door on allowing reconciliation to get farther afield from the focus of COVID, but uh, it, it uh, the process certainly moves forward. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. It's listener mailbag. Heidi, we are very contemporary here. That's our mailbag. <laughs> 
even male seems really contemporary. But what you did, what, you, what David didn't tell you is while he was wearing his pajamas, he learned to sing like that. <laughs> Here's uh, we were just talking about a related issue, so let me ask you this, Kyle. Senator Heitkamp asks, what happened to a filibuster being actual debate on the floor of the Senate instead of ending the filibuster on legislation? Why doesn't Schumer just require senators to take the floor and actually filibuster? This guy has a very cinematic sense of yeah. what the filibuster <laughs> is. But I want, to, I want you to answer that. And I want, to, I want to hear what you have to say about the notion of doing away with a filibuster, because with 51 votes, the Democrats could do that. Well, it's interesting because one of the one of the reasons why um, uh, a more progressive group is talking about filibustering or uh, basically primarying uh, Joe and and Kirsten Cinema is because they won't vote to uh, eliminate the filibuster. I suggest everybody go back and read a letter that was signed by over 60 senators, many of them Democrats led by Chris Coons, saying he would not eliminate the filibuster. And part of this, just so people understand, when when we debated rolling back the, the filibuster for judges, you know, when, when Harry did that, Harry Reid did that, the two senators who argued and, and argued with all their heart against taking that move, Barbara Boxer and, uh, and li- Carl Levin. Yeah. Carl Two Levin, liberals, yeah. To, and institutionalists who understood that they were able to do things in the minority for a lot of years because of the filibuster. So everybody be careful what you ask for. And number two, it, you know, that's never been the filibuster. The filibuster is a rule in terms of closing debate. It's never been required. I mean, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's pretty cool. Great you movie. Could, yeah. You could... You could rewrite the rule saying you have to stand there. But, uh, you know, Ted Cruz does it so that he can fundraise and, you know, Rand Paul does it so he can fundraise. That's never been the structure of the filibuster. This is about trying to achieve a broader consensus and protect minority interests. Yeah, but it has been used, as you know, to uh, I mean, the frustration that Democrats uh, feel has been because it has been perfected as a weapon of obstruction that during the Obama years, McConnell used it to great effect. Yeah, it and it has a really horrible racist history. It does. Yeah, and so so I understand that, but but I also understand it. He, this is what Ted Cruz said when we eliminated the filibuster for judges. He said, "That's fine. When we're there, we're going to eliminate the filibuster, and we're going to pass national right to work, national tort reform, so no no uh, people would have access to justice. We're going to eliminate Planned Parenthood. We're going to eliminate you know. So all of a sudden, you know, those things that would be on the right wing agenda." got put on the table pretty quickly. And so just be careful what you ask for. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, though, Robert, is, we, you know, the, the frustration is that a lot of the filibustering that's going on does not reflect the majority of the country. Uh, and we have, you know, the, these rules were put in to, pro- to prohibit a, uh, uh, or to prevent a tyranny of the majority. But now it's almost as if you have a tyranny of the minority, it is interesting. We spent, you know, probably the first two thirds of the show talking about why somebody can't pass an economic plan with 50 plus one votes. You know, I mean, it's it's almost as if we have to explain how a bill becomes a law as the threshold is 60 votes. Now, I agree with Senator Heikamp. I think there are I think for everybody that wants to eliminate it, there are there are unintended the unintended consequences of if you're not in power 
and the other side has 50 votes, you're almost certainly not to like the outcome. Um, I do think this is a, I think this will be a debate that will be enjoined again after we decide what happens with COVID relief. So if, if they use reconciliation in, in this instance to get the COVID relief legislation, then we're sitting here for the next roughly the rest of the year needing 60 votes to get something done. And so I think this debate's going to come Listen, back again it will. because in reality, you know, I don't think that in this kind of new administration, we, we will have given it a, a significant amount of serious thought in the sense of what it what it means and what it doesn't mean for at least the rest of the 2021 agenda. Listen, I, I think that what's going to happen, I think, is that uh, they're going to choose some very, very popular and important initiative. Uh, and voting if it rights, gets filibustered, like it could be voting rights because we now see Republican states, particularly in the South, trying to retrench after what, after losing ground in 2020 when a lot of people voted. If there's a filibuster, I, I, I think it could trigger this. I think that when you kind of look forward and you think about what can you build consensus around, you can build consensus around infrastructure. Yeah. You can build consensus around and 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 understand this that the biggest you know uh, monkey on the backs of the Republicans is the realignment of money that Trump did taking money from CCC and giving it to farmers, taking money from the military budget and building a wall. They will live to regret that because that I mean if I'm mm-hmm. Biden, I'm saying, look you know, if that's if that's what is possible, I I can be a super legislative branch, you know, expenditure. And you just give me some pot of money and I'll find a way to redeploy it. And so that there's other tools is my point. Yeah. I just want to say two things. One is the filibuster was meant as a kind of nuclear weapon, you know, just a, for really, really unusual circumstances, as as, as you point out, Senator, it's, it was abused to uh, prevent uh, integration and to do away with um, supremacist laws and so on, which is why voting rights might be the fight that triggers this. But the second thing is, you know, the the real uh, goal is when can our politics allow a situation where you can disagree on some things and agree on others and where, you know, that's what the goal should be to get back to working together on uh, things without saying, if you don't work, if you do this, we're not going to work with you on anything. And that, that is, uh, that's, that's really destructive. Gibbs, uh, a guy named Adam wrote and asked about Ohio because now we have a Senate race in Ohio. Rob Portman, a moderate Republican, said he couldn't tolerate the environment anymore and quit and is leaving at the end of this term. Going to be a Senate race there. Jim Jordan has taken himself out. Um, that he has uh, and the Jordan wing of the party are, are sort of uh, aggregating behind uh, the, the former state treasurer there, Mandel. But there's going to be a primary. Just real quick answer. As a Democrat, would you rather see a Jordan Republican or a more establishment Republican on the other side of that ballot in uh, in 2022? It's a great question. I think in the end, I would rather see a Jim Jordan Republican if I was a Democratic strategist, because I think, look, the, the challenge comes with can a moderate Republican get enough people excited to come out? And 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 win in a state that that Trump clearly did well in. I still think if I'm a strategist, I want to take somebody who's on the periphery 
and try to in the suburbs and in 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 places like you know Columbus, Ohio, move them off into something being way outside of the mainstream. I still think that's your 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 better chance than somebody who looks sane and reasonable. Um, I, I will say this: I think Ohio is going to be tough sledding. Uh, is a state where you know I think Democrats felt great about it for some part of the early in election night, and then. You know, now that we look back, it's like a 10, yeah. 8, 9, 10 point state. I think it's going to be really, really hard. Well, you've got an interesting candidate. So Tim Ryan is going to be an interesting candidate for that state because yep. he is a more working class uh, populist oriented candidate. I, I, I have a question for you guys. Is Ohio, Indiana, or is it a little bit more conservative Pennsylvania? Well, I think it's more the second. Yeah, you know, because you've got a lot of metropolitan areas, but uh, I, tell you, I I think it I think it trends more towards Indiana. Well, that's uh, that whether we will find out. I mean, that's why this is going to be such an important election. To your point, I think we may look back in a couple of election cycles and see Ohio as what Missouri has become, and that is we're going to think romantically of when it was a swing state, but it may just devolve. All right, Axe. Yes. I know you were so worried that you weren't going to get a question. So here comes your question. I've got 30 seconds to answer. Go ahead. I hope Jennifer gets a good answer here. Jennifer writes, can you provide a little impeachment 101? What are the consequences of conviction besides ineligibility run for office? And with conviction unlikely, will there be any consequences at all for Trump? Will other improprieties like the Georgia call be considered in this trial? And is it or is it up to the states to file charges? Go. Okay. So first of all, uh, it, it isn't automatic that if he were convicted that he'd be excluded from office, but then just a simple majority could vote to exclude him from office, which it probably would. I don't think he's going to be convicted. And he signaled today in his papers that he wants to kind of turn the trial into a uh, spectacle about his charges that the election had been stolen. And, you know, the reason he can do that is that he knows that 45 Republican senators already voted that this was unconstitutional to try a president who's out of office. A lot of constitutional scholars disagree with that. Uh, the, but there are things that could, I mean, it's unlikely, but you, you know, the local authorities who are investigating the insurrection could charge him. The authorities in Georgia, as you suggest, could charge him. And they are investigating for that call to the Secretary of State there where he asked him to find the votes that he needs. It, it is a little dispiriting because we kind of know the outcome as we did during the first impeachment and tribalism is so strong that uh, I'm not sure what could be presented at that trial that would cause these Republicans uh, who voted, 45 of them who voted against uh, moving forward to convict him. I mean, Heidi, you see any prospect of that? No, I, I mean, I think that the Republicans have decided the fastest way to move on is to put him in the rearview mirror, and you don't do that by impeaching him and letting him continue to spew grievance. And so, you know, I, I think that this is as much about that. But, you know, the, the argument that I would make is that don't don't make this decision for what's happening today. Think about what this is going to look like 20 years from now when you stood on the wrong side yeah. and when we know more. And And so this is one of those moments where people have to vote their conscience, but unfortunately, so few people in the Senate on the Republican side have a conscience. They, they, they're they just into <laughs> self-survival. I'll just finish this uh, story uh, 
uh, finish with this story on voting your conscience. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope on this. I don't think they're worried about 20 years from now. I think they're worried about two years from now and four years from now, and they're scared of Donald Trump. But this voting your conscience thing reminds me of uh, Luis Gutierrez, a former congressman, was a ward committeeman in Chicago, and he had an independent organization. It was kind of grassroots, and he wanted to endorse a particularly difficult candidate to endorse uh, for a local office there. And he said to his war organization, that's my recommendation, but I, everybody is going to vote their conscience and we'll support the winner. And he's counting the ballots in front of his organization and the candidate he supported lost. And he threw the ballots in the garbage can and said, now we're going to revote our consciences. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where we are there. Anyway, Heidi Heitkamp. It's so great to be with you, Gibbs, brother. Lots of action going on. We'll have plenty to talk about. And Mike Murphy, who's on a film shoot, uh, will be back next week to join us full of vim and vigor. Let the record reflect that your 30-second answer came in at 29 seconds. (laughs) Yeah, I know, man. I'm a pro. I don't believe that anyway. All right, guys. Good to be with you. I'm going to go put some pants on. I'll see you later. (laughs) Bye-bye. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.